Will please open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 8 through 13. We're getting near to the end of uh, this book. It's been a great joy to, uh, at least I, I think I can speak for the other pastors, it's been a great joy to preach through the book of Romans. It's one of the highlights of Scripture, if you're allowed to have highlights. And uh, we are continuing now in the, really the last part of an argument uh, or a point that the Apostle Paul is making uh, about the unity uh, within the church. And in, in some ways, uh, if you were here last Sunday night, uh, then you got to hear the first part. And I, in many ways, I feel like I am part of a relay race with Pastor Dean, and he's kind of handed off a baton. I'm trying to take it on to the to the end here as we come to uh, verse 13. And so if you haven't uh, listened to that sermon, I commend it to you. And, uh, but I, I hope that uh, you won't be too lost if, we, if you haven't. As we pick up now in Romans chapter 15, we'll read verses 8 through 13. Would you hear now the word of our Lord? For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be at work amongst us this evening. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would knit our hearts together to be one people, unified in Christ. And would you be glorified in it? And so we pray that you would help us, edify us, as your people this night. So we ask for your blessing and help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever gone to somebody, perhaps a pastor or another believer, and you tell them about some problem that you are struggling with, and have you ever received this advice, or maybe you've given this advice to someone, where you are told or you tell someone who has this problem they're struggling with, you, you tell them, what you need to do is you need to go to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Go to Him. Now, of course, I think that's great advice. I think it's terrific advice. It's, it's full of sound wisdom. The, the issue, though, is that there are times when maybe you receive that advice and you say, yes, that sounds good. But then you begin to wonder, well, but how do I do that? How do I go to Jesus in the midst of this problem? 
Well, in our verses tonight, the Apostle Paul is an example, giving us an example of how to do that. There's been a problem that has been raised, and since the beginning of chapter 14, really, we're at the end, a two-chapter section of, of Paul making this point, saying there is a problem in the church in Rome, and, and that problem is that there is division between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. There are strong believers and there are those who are weak in faith. You're all believers, uh, but there are divisions among you and you need to get over those divisions and you need to unify with one another. That's what Paul has been preaching. And, of course, we've seen in some measure that this uh, division, these these difficulties within the church there in Rome, they, they have historical and and ethnic issues that are that really are substantive. Even if we may not fully grasp what exactly is going on, why this is an issue for them, it's not an issue for us. There are substantial divisions here. And so we come to the verse that we uh, concluded on last week and we're thinking about uh, Pastor Dean's sermon, this verse really being the baton that's being handed off. What does, what does the Apostle Paul say? He comes to this exhortation. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the exhortation. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Get over your differences. Remember your own salvation. Reconcile with one another and be united with one another. And this will bring God glory. Now, if you imagine yourself, if you were transported 2,000 years or so back and you're there in the church with the people who are first hearing this letter written by the Apostle Paul, and you come to this point and you say, okay, I I get it. I get what we're supposed to do, Paul. But how? These differences run deep. This issue, these divisions feel hard to get over. How do we do this? Again, for us, we may look at this and seem think about their differences as something that's, that's relatively small. But for them, these differences likely felt perhaps too big to overcome. What do we do? Well, in our verses tonight, verses 8 through 12, Paul takes his readers and he takes us through a history of the mission of Christ to show us how the Messiah pulls together a people and unites them. A people that the world says has no business being together. And yet he says what Christ does is He brings them together and God says, these are My people. These are My people. So he shows us the mission of Christ. And that is God's creating a new people that is unified in Christ by the blood of Christ. 
which enables us, that enables us, Christ enables us to look at us, at one another, with godly, rather than worldly, eyes. And so tonight, I want to go through this mission of Christ. And as we consider Christ's mission, I want us to see then, well, what does that mean for us? What then do we do? What is our mission and what is our work in light of the mission of Christ? Well, in verses 8 through 12, as I've already said, Paul is outlining a a, a map, as it were. He maps out the mission of Christ, the mission of the Savior. And I I want us to look at these stages, first of all, of uh, his mission. Look first at verse 8. Christ became a servant. For I tell you, verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant. Jesus Christ. Who is He? He is the Son of God. Through whom and for whom all things are made. And He came down from the heavenly places. And when He comes down from the heavenly places, He takes on human form... And becomes a servant. We were driving here and my son pointed out, uh, there's somebody putting up Christmas lights on their house. We're getting into Christmas season, aren't we? You can feel it in the air. I know we have Thanksgiving first, but you know, who started their tunes yet in their house? It's Christmas time. But when we have Christmas coming uh, before us and we start to think about what we're going to give as gifts and so on, it, it, the idea and the thought, oh, the Son of God becomes man. He's born in a manger. He's born as a baby. And the donkey is braying. And, and everything's great. And we have the three wise men. This thought is just something that sort of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Of course Jesus did this for us. Of course the Son of God entered into His creation in order to redeem it. And we find ourselves looking and thinking about this as something, you know, we, we just we take it for granted. But I want you to reflect just for a moment tonight on how counterintuitive this action is that the Son of God takes. I mean, if you consider your own work, your own life, what you do day to day, whatever it may be, in your career, what are you always seeking to do? You're always seeking uh, to rise through the ranks, to get a better paycheck, to have the window office, as it were. Or if you're raising children, what do you want for your children? You want them to stand out, right? You want them to stand out, whether it's in school or in the sports that they play, whatever it is. I I think pretty much in everything that we do, We want to be the best that we can possibly be. Isn't that right? In other words, what we want, human nature is something where we want to go up. That's what we all want. And this is something that I believe is baked into our thinking simply as human people. Ever since Adam... Believed the serpent's lie. What did he do? He reached out for godness. What was the lie? You could be like God. And then he fell. Jesus 
the Son of God did not have to reach, did He? He is God. He always has been God. He always will be God. And what He does with a willing heart, He goes down. Jesus went down. Not only by taking on flesh and entering into the world that he created, but as he does so, he comes in the form of a servant. He comes in the form of a servant. A servant of Yahweh, yes. But as we see in verse 8, in this sort of second stage of his mission, he became a servant to the circumcised. And he came not to be served by them, but to serve them. And Paul looks at this, he looks at Jesus and he says, like Jesus, you are called to be servants of one another. That's how you are supposed to interact with each other within the church. You are no one else's master. You are servants of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we see, not only did Christ become a servant, but he, in verse 8 goes on to say he became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. In other words, what Jesus does is he, the Son of God comes and he appears first to his own people. He appears first to the Jews. And I think that this is a detail perhaps that you and I probably overlook or miss. You know, we live in in Charlotte and in our modern day. What what is there any importance where Jesus shows up? Who, to whom he appears first? Is there any is that really a big deal at all? Well, the apostle Paul thinks so. If you remember back in chapter 1, the the thesis statement, as it were, of Romans, we see that the gospel is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We, We get a hint here that God has a strategy for mission. God has a strategy for bringing the nations under His headship. And the beachhead for Christ's mission is Israel. Is in Judea. Jesus Himself recognizes this in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. There's a Canaanite woman who comes and she's crying out to Jesus for mercy. And Jesus Himself says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the woman who begs for the the crumbs off the table. In John 4, he's with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he tells her that salvation is from the Jews. There's something about that that's important in God's plan. God has a plan, and it's a, a missiological, a mission sort of plan for the, to approach the world, to bring the gospel to the world so that the, the people from every nation will believe and know that Jesus is Lord. But for him, it starts in Israel. It starts first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. 
But then we see at the end of verse 8 that this was not a new plan that God makes up in the New Testament or the start of Romans or as Jesus is walking around in Samaria and thinking, I don't know about this Samaritan woman. Let's, let's talk about the Jews here. We always, it was always God's plan. At the end of verse 8, we see that Jesus comes uh, not only to serve the circumcised, but to fulfill the promise given to Abraham. Look at the end of verse 8. Christ came as a servant to the Jews. Why? In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Don't know who the patriarchs are. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I think it's helpful if we, if we really just kind of think about Abraham primarily here. Not that the others aren't important, but let's primarily think about Abraham here. Because Abraham, there was a specific covenant that God made with Abraham. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to bless the entire world through your seed. Through your family will all the nations be blessed. And so Jesus comes, his coming into the world, is a fulfillment of a promise that God made long ago to Abraham. Jesus came to fulfill that promise. And in verse 9, we see the payoff. You may wonder, well, why, how, what's going on here? But there's a payoff to Christ's missional Strategy. Jesus came through Israel to bring salvation to the Gentiles, that is, to the world. It says in verse 9, at the end of verse 8, that, that Jesus came in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And then in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So Paul's laying out this Plan this map that, that the Savior, the Son of God, Jesus, took in order to bring about salvation to the world. And the gospel came, came to the Jews first. But it did not ultimately come for them, only for them, but for the Gentiles. That is, for the rest of the world. And so Paul's still making a point here. He's not just giving a lecture or... You know, just sort of this, you know, idea about Israel's place here. But he's showing that the history of God's promises shows that, that it was God's plan all along that the Gentile people would have faith in Christ. That yes, those ignorant, smelly, pagan, weird people are going to be mine. And he gave it to Israel to be his missionaries, in a sense. The keepers of God's word. The ones who tell of God's word, who God is, of God's great salvation. Israel was to be God's evangelist to the rest of the world, pointing the world to the glory of God. I remember um, years ago in Dr. Currid's uh, class in the Old Testament, we were going through the laws of the, the food laws, 
And, you know, you can't eat this animal, but you can eat that one. You can't have this one that does this. And, and he talked about this. He, he said, people try to make sense. Why these over here, not these? And you can draw pictures and categories and all these things. And he said, ultimately, the, the real reason, you can't make sense of all of that. Ultimately, the real reason why God is giving them these laws is he's saying, I want the world to see that you belong to me. God cared about the way Israel ate and the way they lived their lives and so on. Primarily, so that the world would know something about God. Isn't that interesting? He wanted the world to see and know the glory of God. And so Paul's saying here, instead of drawing lines between the membership of the church, we are to see those whom God has welcomed into his kingdom, we are to welcome them as well. They may be strange, they may have weird views, they may be weak in their faith. But if God has placed his love on them, you need to love them as well. You need to be a servant to them. Or as Philippians 2 says, you are to consider others as more important than yourself, as Christ himself has done. In verses 9 through 12, or the second half of verse 9 through 12, Paul says, listen, guys, it's not just me here. It's not just me theologizing over here and wanting you to kind of look like this. This isn't, this isn't just my you know, kind of book on the, the ideal church scenario. He's saying, I'm going to show you this is, this is true from God's perspective. This is what God has always told us. It's always been God's plan. And we have these uh, series of verses, the second half of verse 9 through 12. And in verse 9, we have uh, a quote from Psalm 18, verse 49, which says, uh, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And in verse 11, we have another psalm that's quoted. It says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. It's from Psalm 117. And then in verse 10, we see the law is quoted. So we have the Psalms. Now we have the law uh, from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Uh, and, and in verse 10 of our passage, it says, uh, and again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So even in the day of Moses, when they're traveling through the wilderness and they're Still kind of figuring out who they are. They're not yet a nation and all that. God says, rejoice Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with my people. And then finally, in verse 12, we have a quote from one of the prophets from the book of Isaiah. Which says this, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. And one of the things I think we need to glean from this is that we are being shown here, not just these four particular verses say, see, I'm proof texting here, but there's a scope that the the whole of the Old Testament, 
from all the different sections, from the law and from the prophets and from the writings, the the whole scope of the Old Testament is, is speaking about God's missional strategy of bringing the world to himself. Every part of the Old Testament teaches this truth. This is all showing that it has always been God's plan to take a people from every tribe, every uh, nation and language and make them one people in Christ and under Christ. That is God's desire. It was God's purpose, even in His covenant with Abraham, that the Gentiles would stand together with the Jews, praising God and giving Him glory. That was his plan. They say, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. Why does Paul do this? Take, take us through the mission of Christ. Why does he give us this history? Is it, is it simply so that we know kind of more things and pass the theology exam that Paul's about to give? No. It, again, the exhortation in verse 7, welcome, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Christ has accepted you, so you accept them. Love one another for the glory of God. You may wonder, well, why is it so important that I be so welcoming to the Thomases? Come on. Because this brings glory to God. This serving one another and loving one another, this knitting our hearts together, it it brings glory to God. Again, it's not Paul on his own here. This very desire is on the lips of our Savior, Jesus, as He is awaiting the cross. In John 17, when He's praying that high priestly prayer, what does He pray? That we be one, even as God the Father and the Son are one. The glory of God is at stake in the way that you view one another. And the way that you love or don't love one another. He brings it back up in verse 9 here. Why did Christ become a servant to the circumcised? In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And so then we begin to see what is the end goal of Christ's mission? It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. That's what the mission of Christ ultimately achieves. God's glory. And if this is our Savior's mission, if this is our Savior's great concern, then this must be your great concern as well. It needs to be. Have you ever thought that the way that you view one another, the way that you love or don't love one another as Christians, that will either glorify God or it will rob God of His glory? If there are divisions that stand between you and some other believers whom Christ has welcomed into his kingdom and and you cannot reconcile with them, it is something that is robbing God of his glory. How concerned you are for God's glory will be seen in the way that you love one another. 
And that is what Jesus came to do, to bring a people together in unity, not because, you know, it makes life easier for the pastor. Paul's not like, you know, this will make life easier for me as an apostle, you know, oh, such a headache, the Roman church. That's not his concern. His concern is God's glory. And so we need to love one another for the glory of God. Which brings us now to verse 13. All of what Paul has been saying here in the last two chapters leads us to this prayer. This prayer that he, he prays, he, he, he gives this instruction, he gives these exhortations, he's been hitting this home uh, for a couple of chapters now, and now he prays. And his prayer is not, Lord, would these knuckleheads please finally get it? But rather that you would be filled with joy and peace in believing, and that you may abound in hope. I'm praying this, God, because you are the God of hope. That's where this is leading, that that, that your life would be filled with an abundance of hope. There's division in the church here, the Jews versus Gentiles, the strong versus the weak. And Paul's prayer is that instead of, you know, just resolve this, Paul's prayer is that you are filled with joy and peace and there is hope amongst you. You know, there are times, I recognize there are times when things just feel hopeless. You may look at the world and and feel overwhelmed, or perhaps you've just become or grown cynical, and you begin to look at each other in the church and say, well, what can I do with them? Well, verses 8 through 13 speak of the mission of Christ. And you think about those times and seasons in in the times of the Psalms. In the times of the law, when, when Moses is leading his, God's people through the wilderness, all those apparently hopeless situations, from the Egyptian army to the Red Sea, to all the mistakes and sins of the Israelites. I mean, Moses comes down from the mountain with the, the Ten Commandments. God has spoken. He's given us His very Word written down on tablet. And what are you doing? You're dancing around a golden calf? Are you kidding me? Think about the time of Isaiah. What is God's call to Isaiah? To go preach to a people who will not hear. And with eyes who will not see. Isaiah, your ministry is going to look utterly fruitless. But I'm calling you to it. It's going to look utterly hopeless. But I'm calling you to it. But that was always God's mission. That was always the mission for the Son to fulfill. And He fulfills it, doesn't He? Through those great, dark, hopeless seasons. We may feel hopeless today. There are times that may seem hopeless to us now. I spent time recently with with a missionary who is just frayed at his end, uh, afraid at the ends, and he's overwhelmed. He 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 has a tr- hard time thinking 
clearly. He's a very smart man, but he has a hard time thinking clearly. And he doesn't want to go back into his ministry because he tells me it is hopeless. This is a man who's been in ministry for years. It's hopeless. There may be times when you look at one another. You see our differences or you see the troubles that somebody's going through and you say, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. You may think the church is hopeless. But God is not a God of hopelessness, is He? God is a God of hope. Paul's prayer is that what fills our hearts is joy and peace in believing and that we would abound, that we would overflow in hope. And at the end of the day, why shouldn't we? Even when logistically you look at your situation and say, there is no hope. I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but I know that the Lord is a God of hope. Look at what Christ has done. When Abraham was setting up altars to worship God, and when David was composing his great psalms of worship, what were your ancestors doing? Mine were probably dancing around weird-looking idols that I wouldn't even recognize. Acting in ways that would have brought anger to the real God who really made them for His own glory. And yet He said, I'm going to make those people mine. He draws people like you and people like me into his kingdom. He opens up your eyes to see the one true God who has made you. The one true God who has loved you. And in Christ, he forgives you of your sin. And he gives you eternal life. How could we be ever hopeless With such a God. Have you ever wondered, maybe you will now, with Christmas season approaching us, why why would he do it? Why would the Son of God come down from the heavenly, heavenly places in order to become man and be a servant and endure sorrow and grief and rejection? To die a death on the on the cross? Why would he do it? It's not like he was unaware of his mission. You know, imagine how easy it would have been uh, when they were working out the covenant of redemption, as it were, and how easy it would have been for the son to say to the father, you know what, no, I don't think I'm going to do this. I am more important than them. And he'd be right. They don't even like each other. And they certainly won't appreciate me. And he'd be right. I'm not going to set aside my own glory that they owe me just to be scorned and mocked and abused and killed. But Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, not begrudgingly, but willingly, with love in His heart, came down and took on flesh and opened the door of God's kingdom, welcoming you, even you, into the household of God, bringing you out of a dark and hopeless world and bringing you into a kingdom of light 
and hope, a place of joy and a place of peace. My friends, what is the great concern of your heart? What is it that really concerns you the most? Is it that everyone else around you get on the same page as you? Which ultimately is really a concern for your own glory? Or is your great concern God's glory? That was our Savior's concern. That was His great mission, was the glory of God, and it needs to be yours as well. So brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Go to Him and glorify God by loving one another. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ and that unites us together. Would you place your glory as the great concern of our hearts and help us to welcome one another as you've welcomed each of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now stand to receive the benediction. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you abound in hope. Amen.